Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Carnage in Gaza cannot continue. That's a new warning from the UN as Israeli forces take control of Gaza's largest hospital. Then I speak to US Senator Chris Murphy, who says the civilian death toll is already too high. Plus, the power of words. American-Israeli historian Omer Bartov defines genocide. And Islamophobia in America. Journalist Leila El Haddad talks to Hari Srinivasan about the troubling rise in hate crimes. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. After weeks of fierce fighting, Hamas says Israel has gained control of Gaza's main hospital, where thousands of civilians have been sheltering. Once a vital medical center in Gaza, now many of al-Shifa's wards look like this, damaged and deserted. Doctors say the hospital's main building has effectively ceased functioning and that the situation inside is catastrophic. Israel claims to be conducting a targeted operation against Hamas, a command center underneath the hospital. But medical officials and Hamas have both consistently denied this. UNAID Chief Martin Griffith says he is, quote, appalled by the scenes and that hospitals are not battlegrounds. Nada Bashir brings us the developments at the Al-Shifa Hospital. <laughs> Weeks of bombardment had already left Gaza's largest hospital in what has been described as a catastrophic situation. Dr. Zal al-Shifa, working under impossible circumstances, caring for hundreds of patients as Israel's military incursion moves inside the hospital. The occupation soldiers are still on the ground floor. They are searching employees, civilians, even the injured and patients. Some were stripped and placed in dehumanizing and miserable conditions. Israel's raid on al-Shifa has been described as precise and targeted, focused, they say, on claims of a Hamas command center beneath the hospital. But it is civilians, including medical staff and patients, that have been caught in the center of this unrelenting battle. We can't look through the windows or doors. We don't know what's happening. We can tanks moving within the hospital. We can hear continuous shooting. Now, uh, but again, it's totally scary situation. What are these sounds, doctor? I'm hearing sounds. It's continuous shooting from the tanks. Israeli defense officials say soldiers found concrete evidence that Hamas used al-Shifa hospital as what they have described as a terror headquarters. Though no further details were provided on the nature of this evidence. 
Both Hamas and healthcare officials have long denied a military presence within Al Shifa. CNN cannot verify either side's claims. With over a thousand patients and medical staff still inside the hospital, many have expressed alarm over the civilian impact of the Israeli military's operation. Our concern on the humanitarian side is for the, ben the welfare of the patients of that hospital, which is, of course, in great peril at the moment. We have no fuel to run it. The babies have no incubators, uh, newly born. Some are dead already. We can't move them out. It's too dangerous. On Wednesday, the Israeli military said their troops had delivered incubators and medical supplies to the El Shiva hospital. CNN cannot independently verify this claim and has not been able to reach the hospital for confirmation. However, the Director General of Gaza's hospitals has warned that babies at El Shifa are in severe danger as conditions in the hospital deteriorate further. Adding that there is no place to move dozens of incubators outside of the hospital under current circumstances. But even as Israel tightens its grip on El Shifa, now said to be under the complete control of the Israeli military, according to Hamas, Doctors say they will continue to do whatever they can to save the lives of those wounded in this devastating war. Egypt now says that it's working as quickly as possible to evacuate some of the newborn babies which, who are most at risk. And let's not forget how many children were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th, about 30 from inside Israel. The United States says that it did not give the okay for Israel to launch military operations around al-Shifa, well, the terrible situation developing in the Middle East will probably most likely be on the agenda when U.S. President Joe Biden sits down with China's President Xi Jinping in San Francisco. Ahead of the high-stakes talks, I've been speaking to U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, who's been warning for weeks about an unacceptable civilian death toll in Gaza. Senator Murphy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you a few pointed questions about the operation against the al-Shifa hospital right now in Gaza. So the top UN humanitarian official, Martin Griffiths, has said, this carnage cannot be allowed to continue. Uh, others have weighed in very, very strongly about something that's really beginning to really test everybody's, I guess, tolerance now. Do you support the Israeli storming of al-Shifa? So uh, let's just back up if we could for a moment. This is the first time that you and I have had the chance to talk about this. Um, Israel has to destroy Hamas's military capabilities. Um, the, the world cannot permit Hamas to be able to launch an attack like they did on October 7th. Uh, and war is difficult. It's ugly. Civilians often get hurt. And Hamas makes that much worse, um, as you know, by embedding themselves and their equipment and their assets inside civilian buildings, inside hospitals and churches and schools and mosques. That's Hamas's decision to use human beings as shields. Um, wh what I have said, though, is that the number of civilians being killed right now inside uh, Gaza is unacceptable and it's unsustainable. And in fact, I think it's contrary to Israel's long-term security objectives because Hamas is going to grow in strength, potentially, if the civilian death count remains this high. Uh, so I think that Israel has to begin to make different targeting decisions. Um, I will be honest with you, I am not privy to the intel on this specific 
um, asset. Um, but uh, ultimately, um, the civilian numbers, casualty numbers have been too high. And I think Israel has to begin to make different decisions, even while it continues the fight. I don't support a ceasefire. I think Israel should continue to the fight against Hamas. I just think the civilian death count has become too high. Can I ask you to clarify, you said just now you don't support a ceasefire, but you do support a short-term cessation of hostilities. In fact, you came out quite early in this war vo voicing concerns about civilian deaths. Can you explain to me what you mean, how long, and now in the intervening you know, time, and you're describing this, this civilian casualty toll, do you think it's time to call for more? So I just don't accept the premise that the only two choices here are a ceasefire, which sounds to me like you know, uh, ending the fight against Hamas and the current level of civilian death. Um, you are talking about um, civilian casualty counts on a daily basis that are higher than most all other modern conflicts. Um, so to me, you know, two things have to happen. One, yes, I support a humanitarian pause in order to um, set up the ability to get humanitarian assistance and food and water to the citizens of Gaza. I also think that's the only way that you get the hostages out. But I also just believe there has to be a change in um, the strike calculus for Israel. Um, I think there have often been decisions made that had far too high civilian death counts um, when looking at the um, uh, importance of the Hamas asset that you were taking out. Uh, so I think both of those things have to happen. Uh, more surgical strikes, um, more concern for the impact on civilians, and a uh, humanitarian pause, either several days or a couple hours every day, in order to be able to deliver humanitarian relief and get the hostages out of there. So that's, you know, that's your view as a U.S. senator and as a friend of Israel. I want to know what you think these same concerns are doing to your allies in, in the rest of the world. For instance, Jordan, for instance, others. And you probably saw the Washington Post op-ed by King Abdullah, who says that we need to stop this before, quote, we reach our moral breaking point. Karim Khan, chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, says we are witnessing a pandemic of inhumanity. I've had the French president, the former French president, telling me that the world used to really think about, you know, peace. And now the world is actually moving into a relentless war footing everywhere we look. These are pretty pointed emotional things for these leaders to say. Well, listen, th this, this is inherently emotional and spiritual. You're talking about large numbers of innocent human beings dying, but this all began with 1,300 Israelis being brutally murdered by a terrorist organization, a terrorist organization that then retreated to Gaza and used human beings as shields to try to avoid accountability. And so I think it is important to understand the nature of Hamas and to also understand the moral cost to the nation if Hamas, to the world, excuse me, if Hamas gets away with this. Uh, there has to be accountability for Hamas. And so I don't support a ceasefire because Hamas has made it perfectly clear that they will use that ceasefire in order to uh, regroup 
and carry out similar attacks against Israel. And it's a message to other terrorist organizations that still may have designs on hitting the United States that they could get away with future attacks with the same kind of impunity. So what I believe is that the fight has to continue against Hamas, but the pace of the fight uh, and the decisions regarding targeting have to change as well to reduce dramatically the number of innocent people who are being killed. A lot of people are saying, you know, this didn't start on October 7th. A lot of people are saying there's not enough of the history of what's happened, you know, in this whole region that's being told around this terrible crisis that we find ourselves in right now. But certainly a lot of people are also saying there needs to be some thought and planning for the day after. For instance, still trying to plan for the two-state solution, which also King Abdullah called for. Uh, I spoke last night on this program to one of the you know, previous sort of Israeli-Palestinian negotiators. Uh, this is Daniel Levy, what he's telling me about, about uh, you know, the possibility of coming back to the peace table after this war. Israel has largely neglected the idea that one does politics with the Palestinians. One does solution-oriented approaches. And therefore, it's been difficult to get that answer in any kind of clear fashion. Now, I think the most likely outcome is that Hamas will continue to exist. Its military capacity may be downgraded. Politically, it is probably stronger than before. There will still be a Hamas. A, do you agree with that assessment? But B, how do you think one can get around a peace negotiation after this? So I hope he's wrong, but part of the reason why I have raised these concerns, and you are right, I was amongst the first to, in the Senate to suggest that the civilian death rate was unsustainable, is because I believe that um, a casualness about the number of civilians who are dying, uh, the impact on innocent people inside Gaza, um, is a gift to Hamas politically, that it allows them to continue to recruit and grow stronger. That's exactly what we saw in Afghanistan when we were too casual, too permissive about the impact of that war on civilians. It allowed the Taliban to grow and to become strong enough that it ultimately could defeat our efforts there. We don't want a reproduction of that reality inside uh, inside Gaza. Um, your question is a good one, um, and there's, it's a question both for, for Israel in terms of its overall negotiations about a future Palestinian state and the future of Gaza itself. Inside Gaza, um, I, I do think that Israel has to be thinking right now about what a follow-on governance structure is. I do not think it's a good idea to have a long-term Israeli military uh, occupation. And so whether it's the PA or some other group of uh, non-Hamas-affiliated uh, political leaders, you've got to have a Palestinian-led governance structure in order for it to be perceived as legitimate. And it'll really be up to the Israeli people as to whether the government that follows the Netanyahu government is one that is truly invested in a Palestinian state. It is true for the last 20 years, there has been a standstill. There sort of was a belief that if you ignored this question, that it would just go away. Um, it's not going away. Um, the Palestinians deserve a state. It's the only way to guarantee the long-term survival of Israel. And my hope is that the Israeli people will choose when they go to the polls next to elect a government that will get serious uh, about negotiating a future Palestinian uh, state next to a Israeli state, next to a Jewish state. Uh, and, and in the meantime, 
President Biden is suffering, you know, from the perception of being too close to to what the UN is calling this carnage in the Middle East. Politically, you know, he's suffering amongst even Democrats. And I wonder what you think people like Xi Jinping, who he's meeting with today, are going to say to him. And what you hope in this case is the best that can be achieved uh, from this very important Xi-Biden meeting. Well, I think it is important for the Biden administration to stand with Israel. Uh, I think it's important for us to get an aid package through uh, to support Israel. I think it's also important for the Biden administration to continue to press for there to be changes in the pace of this conflict to protect civilians. But um, what is also true is that this crisis has once again showed the centrality of American leadership. To the extent that Iran has chosen not to enter this conflict, which was not um, a a foregone conclusion uh, at the beginning, it's because the United States of America and Joe Biden um, made clear to Iran that there could be significant consequences uh, for them if they entered the fight against Israel. It has been American leadership that has stopped this conflict from spreading. And so China hopes and she hopes that American influence is fading, that ultimately China will be uh, the most important power in a place like the Middle East. Israel didn't call the Chinese to come in and try to stop this conflict from spreading. The Gulf allies didn't run to China uh, to try to figure out a way forward. No, they turned to the United States. And so I think Joe Biden walks into this meeting um, with another reminder to Xi that um, uh, America still has the strongest system of, of allies around the world. Um, so I, I do hope that they get a limited set of agreements here, whether it be on climate or fentanyl or uh, defense communication. Um, but I think that this has been a strong advertisement that America is still the most indispensable nation in the world. And just finally, on domestic politics, because there's a whole brouhaha about whether Biden should run, whether he shouldn't, and why he's not getting credit for the economy. And you know, uh, you know better than me. Um, so help me understand. Graphs like the one we're putting up now, showing inflation down, the producer price index actually declining, and yet still polls consistently finding a complete lack of confidence in the president uh, for handling the economy. This is, you know, amongst the American viewers. Why is that? Well, listen, I think there are certain structural deficiencies in the U.S. economy. And so when, you know, people express um, a real lack of happiness with the state of affairs, um, it's because they're still waiting for a government who will come along and sort of, um, you know, press the reverse button um, on the neoliberal economic order that outsourced all of their jobs to China and vested enormous power in billionaires and monopolistic companies. Joe Biden has made a big down payment on that conversion, but uh, the rewards have not been received yet in the amount that individuals want. Um, I don't worry about this polling a lot because when voters go to the polls, when they actually cast ballots, they are overwhelmingly electing Democrats. They just don't believe that Republicans are responsible grownups any longer who deserve to be in charge of local, state, or national government. And so, well, the latest polls may cause some consternation, the fact of the matter is that over and over again, as we saw just last week, when voters actually show up to the ballot box, they're choosing Democrats. And that, I think, will still be the case next fall. Senator Murphy, thank you so much for joining us.
Thank you. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, on definitions and terminology, earlier this month, a team of United Nations experts warned that Palestinians in Gaza are at, quote, grave risk of genocide. Today, as we see evidence of fresh horrors in Gaza, we look to history to help us understand. In a documentary series called Scream Bloody Murder, which first aired on CNN in 2008, I examined the history of the term genocide, from its origins in the Armenian genocide of World War I and then to the Holocaust. His name was Raphael Lemkin. In 1944, he wrote a book about the Nazis. In it, he combined the Greek word genos for race with the Latin word side for killing. Genocide, a new word for a crime that he would spend his lifetime trying to prevent. Lemkin's interest started early, as he wrote in his autobiography. I started to devour books on the subject. The appeal for the protection of the innocent followed me all my life. As a teenager, Lemkin learned through news accounts that the Turkish government was slaughtering its Christian Armenian citizens. The government claimed it was putting down an Armenian revolt. And over eight years, it killed a million Armenian men, women and children in massacres and forced marches. To this day, the Turkish government denies a genocide took place and few of the perpetrators have ever faced justice. I was shocked. Why is the killing of a million a lesser crime than the killing of a single individual? Raphael Lemkin made a bold plan he would create an international law that would punish racial mass murder and prevent it from ever happening again. Six million were killed in the Holocaust and I have covered modern genocides from Bosnia to Rwanda. It does keep happening again. So we turn to my next guest, Omer Bartov, who's an Israeli-American historian and a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. And he's joining me now from Rhode Island. Uh, professor Bartov, welcome to the program. You wrote a really interesting and I think very timely and important article about this very subject in the New York Times, which caught my interest. So I want to first start by asking you, this is a huge debate now on campuses across America and, and around the world. What are you hearing from your students? What are they asking you? What are you telling them about this term, 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I've been uh, watching you for many years and admiring your work. So, um, what, what I hear uh, is a lot of confusion among students uh, and a lot of, I'd say, polarization. Um, people are using the word genocide a lot um, without quite knowing what it means. Uh, people are horrified by what they see and hear is happening in Israel and in Gaza. And I've been trying, in fact, to organize all kinds of meetings where we sit and talk and try to understand the history of what is happening, the roots of it. As a historian, this is what I can do. And how do we um, find a way to resolve this? One of the things that was really interesting, you know, the sort of the pullout from, from your article is what you said, and it's a little bit like the title of my documentary, Scream Bloody Murder. You said, you know from history that it is crucial to warn of the potential for genocide before it occurs rather than belatedly condemn it after it's taken place. You say that, I just want to know whether, whether you ever think that it's possible to raise and actually stop it before it takes place. You know, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, but I think that you know as well as I do uh, that there have been um, many genocides over the 20th century where there were signs that things might become genocide. And for various reasons, political uh, reasons of perception, of uh, all kinds of different opinions about this, people did not warn sufficiently in advance. And once things happen, it's first very difficult to stop them and then, as we know, it's very difficult to bring people to account as well. So I think that one should always err on the side of caution and warn when there's sufficient signs, both in terms of how people speak um, about a potentially targeted group and then what sort of actions they're taking before genocide actually begins. Mm -hmm. So I want to take specifically the case that, or you know, the, 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 the war that we're witnessing right now between Israel and Hamas after what happened on October 7th. So first, let me just start in calendar order. Do you believe that Hamas created, what do you believe? What is the crime that Hamas perpetrated within the war crimes bracket in Israel on October 7th? Well, it would seem to be clear that what Hamas carried out was a terrorist action, was a war crime, and I think could easily also be defined as a crime against humanity. But additionally, if you think about the Hamas Charter and what it has been saying, uh, Hamas wants to replace uh, Israel as a state with the Islamic Palestinian state. Uh, that could be defined also as a genocidal aim. If you accept that, then you might say that that uh, attack on October 7th also had uh, genocidal aspects to it, if it's part of that larger scheme. And what do you make of the killings in Gaza, which so many people are now beginning to talk about it as a genocide against, uh, against, uh, against Palestinians. Can you define for us legally what you see and what you believe is happening? 
So look, first of all, um, it seems to me from the information we have, and I'm not on the ground, of course, I'm just watching reports from the United States and on the Israeli media and other media, um, it appears that there are war crimes uh, happening. And, you know, w war crimes are defined as uh, serious violations of laws and customs of war and international armed conflict against combatants and civilians. And I think the 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 disproportion in the number of civilians killed uh, is so great that the, there's probably the case for speaking of war crimes, possibly also of crimes against humanity, which are extermination or other mass crimes of civilian populations. For genocide, what you need, uh, according to the UN 1948 uh, resolution uh, on the crime of genocide, is to say that it's the intent or, or to see the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, or racial, or religious group as such. That is, that the violence is intended, is intentional, or, or with the intention of destroying the group, a particular group, as such. Now, if we think about the case that is going on now, there have been statements by Israeli political leaders, by Israeli military leaders, which have genocidal echoes uh, about flattening of Gaza, removing the population out of Gaza, treating uh, the people there as um, the Bible instructed the Israelites to treat the, the Amalek, that is to kill the men, women, and, and, and babies. So uh, intent, in fact, has been expressed by Israeli leaders. Whether this is happening on the ground, I'm not convinced that um, right now there is intentional uh, killing of civilians, but there is totally disproportionate killing of civilians, disproportionate in a relationship to the military goals declared by Israel itself. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think we are close, uh, but we're not there yet. So if we are, to coin your phrase, not there yet, where are we? What is the, the next level if you're talking about disproportionate killing, uh, not yet, you're not prepared to call it genocide yet. I think you've warned that it might become. What is the mechanism? What does what needs to happen for the uh, the legal parameters to be extended? So you were um, in in that clip. You were speaking about the Armenian genocide, uh, and one can also mention the Holocaust. Uh, these are genocides that began with ethnic cleansing. They began with the intent to remove populations from areas that one didn't want these people to live in. Uh, what we are seeing in Gaza right now is the displacement of about a million uh, Palestinian civilians from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. The Israeli military claims it's doing it uh, for their own protection from uh, uh, military activities, but in fact, uh, their houses are meanwhile being destroyed. So you have now over 2 million people being cramped into southern part of the Gaza Strip without any infrastructure to sustain that. That and statements which are being made about possibly moving uh, the population entirely out of the Gaza Strip, that can eventuate in genocide. What is it now? Do you think it is uh, ethnic cleansing? Because you said, you, you know, I mean, I, I 
as I said, witnessed what happened in Bosnia, started with the words ethnic cleansing, ended up being genocide in the final prosecution of it, and that was adjudicated at the war crimes tribunal. Well, I, th I think we, unfortunately, we will eventually know, uh, hopefully, um, the, the activities on the ground now can be changed. I'm, I, I was listening to your previous interview, and I would say um, the, 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 the paradigm of what is happening now has to be changed. I do think that Hamas, as a, a hegemon in Gaza, is no longer um, possible. One has to remove it as a hegemon in order to move forward. But if um, the Israeli political leadership and other uh, states were to speak about the next step, that is of changing the relations between Israel and, and Palestinians and moving towards some resolution of that conflict, then that could spell a different policy also on the ground. But as it is now, it's only about destruction. And that will end up, if not in genocide, in any case, in vast crimes against humanity. I, I'm sorry, I just wanted to ask you, do you think what's happening is ethnic cleansing? Well, it looks like it because people have been moved in large numbers from one part of the Gaza Strip to another. Their homes have been destroyed. I don't see how they could come back. And we don't know exactly what the policy of the Israeli government and military is right now, but it doesn't seem like people will be able to come back to where they came from. That would become ethnic cleansing. You mentioned intent, and you said even though some of these statements have been made, you, don't, you can't tell whether it's the intent. And obviously, the Israeli uh, officials have said it is not their intention, quite the opposite, to harm or kill civilians. And when I've asked them very pointedly, despite you know, an intelligence ministry document about moving Palestinians out of Gaza into the Egypt Sinai and trying to outsource them to Europe and anywhere else in the world. They said that's not a serious document or it's a preliminary paper or whatever. So I wonder what you, the fact that those statements have been made, even though, do they alone stand? Can they alone be, you know, be adjudicated those statements or not? I think for, um, in order to prove genocide, you need two things. You need to show intent, and then you need to show that this intent is actually being practiced on the ground. It's being implemented. Uh, and, of course, we don't know exactly uh, what is being implemented, and we don't know exactly what the intentions are. But I would say that in, in a larger framework, clearly the people who are in the Israeli government now, there's some very radical uh, people in government, people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich, those are people whose goal is to empty the country as much as possible. In the country, I mean mandatory Palestine, so it includes the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, to empty it as much as possible of its Palestinian population and to settle it by Jewish settlers. If you think about it from that point of view, many of those people speak now of the war in Gaza as an opportunity, not as a tragedy, as an opportunity to finally implement their own political goal. 
So as long as these people are in government, uh, the danger of that being ethnic cleansing or genocide or combination thereof is high because that is the actual political goal. If they're removed from government, and if Hamas is removed from the paradigm, then we can think about a completely different uh, political scenario. And, and finally, I, I wonder whether you think if it's possible to be losing sight of actually what's going on because of the, you know, the semantics over naming issues, you know, and I wonder whether you think um, using words like genocide and others kind of devalues them. What, what do you think as a historian of this topic? Well, it's true. Um, uh, genocide, this is one reason why some scholars actually suggest that we stop using the term, because it has become a term that is used to describe anything we find atrocious. Um, and that's not the way you define genocide. It, it was supposed to be the crime of all crimes, the worst crime. But it is defined in a particular way, and it doesn't mean that war crimes or crimes against humanity are any better. They are just defined differently. Mm -hmm. So I do think we, we, when we get into the semantics of it, we may lose sight of what is actually going on on the ground, uh, which is apparently over 11,000 civilians killed with thousands of children on a scale that has never been seen. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Before. Professor Omar Bartov, thank you very much indeed for joining us from Brown University. And our next guest, Palestinian-American journalist Leila El-Haddad, is also concerned about the term genocide and what might be happening. She is part of a lawsuit that's been filed against the Biden administration, which alleges that it has failed to prevent it. She argues that the government's reluctance to call for a ceasefire is not only hurting Gazans on the ground, but also Arab and Mo Muslim populations like in America who are subject to heightening Islamophobia. And she's joining Hari Srinivasan to discuss her experiences in this highly volatile climate. Christian, thanks. Leila Ahadad, thanks so much for joining us. You, along with a group of uh, Palestinian rights activists and residents of Gaza, are, are now in a uh, lawsuit that's filed against the Biden administration um, for failing to, quote, prevent an unfolding genocide. Tell us about the lawsuit, if you can. That's right. I'm one of many plaintiffs uh, uh, in this lawsuit against President Biden, um, Secretary of State Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Austin. And it's just one, for me, it's just one small thing that I'm doing that I promised my family that I owe to them, both my family members, um, five direct family members who were killed in an mm -hmm. Israeli attack on their home with U.S. provided weapons that I paid for with my taxes. It's something small that I can do for them, as well as for the surviving family members in Gaza City right now. Um, to hold my government to account 
in failing to prevent this ongoing genocide uh, against my people. Now, at the time that we were having this conversation, the Biden administration has not responded yet to this lawsuit. But um, uh, President Biden uh, has said repeatedly in the past that Israel has a right to defend itself from a terror attack. Um, Why are you saying that the U.S. is failing to uphold international law? Well, it's the, the biggest burden which burden of proof which is proving intent to commit genocide has been proven for us um, in numerous statements by israeli officials themselves and our government here the united states has been uh, abetting that abetting the unfolding genocide that has already whose intent has already been proven by way of diplomatic cover by way of 14 billion dollars um in aid and by way of uh of uh, rhetoric as well. So, you know, we have the military support, the diplomatic support, and so on, the political support. And um, so that is what makes this this circumstance, the specific instance, um, so unique, so different than other um, instances where the United States has provided unconditional support for Israel. Did you have an opportunity to sit down with the Biden administration? I heard that you declined an invitation. Is that right? That's right. There was two separate. I was asked to participate in a roundtable with um, with Arab Amer- members of the Arab American and um, Palestinian American community in the State Department. I was also asked to participate in a later on at the height of, of the attacks on Gaza um, at the White House, which I declined um, because, frankly, it got to the point where it was feeling performative and um, not really bearing any real results. It was just something the administration was doing to be able to allay um, fears and say, we hear you, we feel you, but but they don't. Um, and and it's the message has been delivered loud and clear that they've lost our votes in, in 2024. Um, and these efforts, frankly, are falling flat amongst the Arab and, and Palestinian and Muslim communities in the United States. I know that you met with uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in a, uh, in a setting, in a forum, and I wonder, what were you able to say to him that you thought might have an effect? This was very early on in um, Israel's assault on Gaza. And really, I was hoping to use it as an opportunity to convey to him how I felt as a how we felt as a Palestinian and a Muslim community, I wanted to convey to him. I promised my cousins and my family in Gaza that I would convey their reality to him. Um, my main message was that all we're hearing, all I'm hearing, is that Palestinians are barbarians and and baby killers and um, and the unhumans to which the law of war did not apply and that my administration was okay with that. That was the message I wanted to convey to him. And I asked him directly, what's the benchmark? How many Palestinians and how many children and women need to die before you are okay with finally calling for a ceasefire? And of course, we discussed the fact that this was not self-defense when 75% of the victims have been women and children. That is not only grossly disproportionate, that's reprehensible to call it self-defense and insist that there's no red lines 
for Israel is morally repugnant. So those were really the messages we conveyed. And again, the main ask was um, was the ceasefire. Why do you think it is that calling for a ceasefire or a halt of hostilities or really however you want to phrase it, because even it seems the phrasing matters, why has that inherently become a political act or one that admits defeat for one side or the other? I keep saying that ceasefire has somehow become a dirty word, that you see our politicians literally um, engaging in, uh, you know, uh, verbal acrobatics just to be able to avoid saying it, right? Um, and the message that we keep getting from them, from different legislators that I've personally met with and officials, is that, oh, it's it's going to be bad optics, right? It's It's going to make it look like, you know, we're caving in. And, you know, Biden even used that word. He said we. He didn't see, he didn't say, excuse me, Israel. Um, does that make is he suggesting that that the United States is he admitting that the United States is complicit in this? Who knows? But the the fact remains that they consider a call for a ceasefire to be bad optics, as though somehow um, Hamas would be winning, that they would be caving. Um, but the reality is, the a large number of Israelis themselves are now calling for a ceasefire, coming out and protesting, let alone, you know, Americans as well, um, because there's no winners in this. There's no winners in war. Yeah, so I wonder if, look, you're an author, you know the power of words and language, and considering the emphasis you're putting on the way that the Biden administration is talking about Palestinians and about the conflict, do condemnations matter? And does it matter if President Biden condemns the actions of Israel or if you condemn the actions of Hamas? I think it sends a strong message, but I think what's more important, again, is actions. You know, actions to me speak louder than words. Um, and the actions of our government so far have been subpar to non-existent. Um, we've only heard over and over again that your lives as Palestinians simply matter less to us than the lives of Israelis. And again, that messaging has a direct impact on our communities here in the United States. So should Arab American, Muslim American organizations be condemning the actions of Hamas if they want the same condemnation back from the Biden administration towards the actions of Israel? Does, do those messages matter, I guess, what I'm asking? Our communities have always had to assume the burden of before even being asked about their loved ones and their families have always had to assume the burden of condemnation we see we've seen this happen over and over and over and over again not only in 9-11 but long before and i think the question um 
that we need to ask is, you know, and, and I should say, and they've always come out and said, none of us condone violence. Human life is precious. But that's all anyone ever wants to hear from us. They're not interested again. They're not interested in our lives, our people, um, our rights. They're just hearing, they're just interested in hearing us um, condemn over and over yeah. and over again, just sort of condition us um, into condemning. And I think those two things um, should not be conditional. Recently, the organization CARE, C-A-I-R, which stands for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, had uh, put out some information that is quite distressing. I just want to cite a couple of the things, that they've received more than 1,200 calls for help. This is in the context of the um, the, the war that's happening right now, and that's a 216% increase over the previous year. Essentially, uh, people are calling into this organization talking about anti-Arab bias in their lives. And um, what's your reaction to that? Have you been experiencing this? Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I have personally experienced this. Um, I myself, along with my daughter, um, I was attending a rally in Rockville, Maryland last week, where a uh, very peaceful rally calling for a ceasefire, where directly adjacent to us was a very vocal, vitriolic counter-protest that were shouting at us. And as you can see, I'm very visibly Muslim. Things like animals, uh, barbarians, um, we're going to take your heads, go back home, uh, murderous Muslims um, will kill your brothers, you're not welcome here, and on and on. My own daughter experienced this when she was walking in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. She also wears hijab, and somebody yelled at her, um, a baby murderer. Um, she has faced significant pushback at her school here in Howard County, Maryland as well, in trying to organize uh, something as simple as a walkout uh, to call for a ceasefire. I've received hate mail in my actual mailbox um, calling on uh, Israel to kill every expletive, I don't want to say, um, who mm -hmm. gives birth, basically any woman who gives birth to future rats and um, uh, threatening words saying to kill them all. Um, this has become, unfortunately, the new normal, or I should say abnormal um, in our lives. Uh, we remain vigilant, um, but the unfortunate reality is at a time when I should be grieving my family, and I've lost several uh, family members in Gaza, direct family, as well as dozens of extended family, I'm having to look over, over my back. And, um, you know, while it doesn't surprise me, it, the real problem here, again, is the way that the administration has gone about this. And and um, it's a direct result, I would say, of the dehumanizing and racist rhetoric that Israel has been using to justify its massacres in Gaza that then our administration here has essentially been promoting, regurgitating a lot of these lies. And that has a direct impact, effect on not only Muslim Americans and Palestinians, but as well as Arab Americans and a lot of people of color as well who are none of the above. Why do you think it is that Muslim Americans end up being the targets? I think the unfortunate reality is that while hate attacks and hate rhetoric of any kind is reprehensible, and I want to say that loud and clear, 
it's my feeling that Palestinian Arab Muslim lives matter less to this administration and are therefore not highlighted um, as much uh, than non-Palestinian Arab and Muslim lives. I think that a lot of it has to do with othering, right? It's it's this idea also that, you know, we're not a monolithic group. When I say we, um, often what happens is when you have something, when you have when you see something like what happened to Gaza and when you see this dehumanizing racist rhetoric being rolled out by the Israelis um, that then has a direct impact on media coverage and disinformation that is then repeated by our administration, that has a direct impact on our communities here. And our communities could be Palestinian, Muslim or Christian. It could be Arab, non-Palestinian. And they could be brown, people of color who aren't even Muslim at all. Um, I've had a lot of my friends from the South Asian community here in Maryland who are sick and others um, who have been at the receiving end of hate attacks as well. And so it's this othering, I think, that contributes to to uh, this reality that you mentioned. You were in the United States after 9-11. And it seems that we're I'm going over some of those same roads. That's right. I I was here during 9-11. I was actually in Boston and I was a graduate student and they were terrifying times. I won't lie, especially especially for Muslims who were not U.S. citizens. It was difficult for everyone, but I felt particularly vulnerable as a stateless Palestinian and, and was myself detained and threatened with deportation to, to where I have no idea um, at some point while I was pregnant with my son in Logan Airport. Um, I'll never forget those days ever. And I and I tell that story to my children over and over to teach them to be resilient, to teach them to speak out, um, to teach them to seek due process. I actually filed complaints against the FBI and, and that bore fruit to teach them never to give up, to give up. And and I and I the message I give them, especially my daughter, is the struggle is long and it is real and uh, and it is necessary. Um, so don't give up and don't get too comfortable because you have to not only speak out on behalf of yourself and your people, but on anyone who um, is the victim of a grave injustice and of which there are many that our government here has uh, has perpetrated. And um, so that's that's in summary the message I, I give her without victimizing her in any way or giving her this mentality that she's somehow somehow a victim but to be vigilant and to be alert and to be vocal and to advocate for herself and for others. You've called this time period your your daughter's 9-11. What do you mean by that? I think this really hit home for her for the first time, um, meaning what was happening to Gaza and to her family in Gaza and how that was directly related to herself here as a young Palestinian, visibly Muslim American. And so I call it her coming of age moment in the sense that she was suddenly in the throes of all of this um, at the receiving end of hateful um, vitriol that was being hurled at her um, at the receiving end of intimidating tactics as she was trying to do something as simple as, uh, you know, call for an end to hostilities. And and she couldn't believe that this was happening. And I, you know, I didn't want to tell her, well, welcome to the club, but that's why I call it her coming of age moment. She she suddenly realized um, 
this is real and there are real threats and and um you know people will say things to her that are mean and hateful and um and try to silence her when she simply tries to speak out in support of uh, freedom and equality for her people so this is the unfortunate reality we live in but again it's um it's a moment that i hope she will learn from um and and you know a teachable moment it's unfortunate that it had to come in this way and i don't wish that upon anyone obviously palestinian author and activist Layla al-haddad thanks so much for joining us it was my pleasure thank you and we cover the troubling rise of anti-semitism around the world on this program of course and we want to try to use this platform to be a constructive place of solutions and to show our common and shared humanity. We want to try to get beyond the fear, the hate and the tribalism. Finally tonight, New Zealand has chosen its bird of the century after a spirited campaign by an unlikely foreign influencer. Sporting a giant orange costume, talk show host John Oliver led the Puteki Teki to victory after finding a loophole that allowed anyone in the world to cast a vote. He went on late night television to explain what drew this comedian to a lark like this. He says, the weird puking birds with colorful mullets are so easy to love. Oliver's efforts smashed voting records and elbowed out the Kiwi, which is New Zealand's national bird, from the top spot, which of course ruffled a few feathers there. The contest aims to raise awareness of threats to New Zealand's native birds. And with fewer than a thousand remaining in the country, the Puteki Teki is a worthy winner. And it's got quite a name. Brings a smile to your face alone. And a quick programming note, on Saturday you can watch the brand new Amanpour Hour from 11am on America's East Coast and 5pm in Central Europe. We'll bring you context, conversation, analysis of our world with newspapers and cultural icons and the best of CNN in the field also from my archive. I also take questions about events shaping our future. So scan the QR code on your screen or email askamanpour at cnn.com. The Amanpour Hour airs Saturdays 11am Eastern 5 p.m. Central Europe, only here on CNN. And that's it. Thanks for watching. Goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.